Good morning. Today's scripture reading will be from the book of Numbers, chapter 11, verses 4 through 20. I'll be reading from the NIV. The rabble with them began to crave other food, and again the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. The manna was like coriander seed and looked like resin. The people went around gathering it and then ground it in a hand mill or crushed it in a mortar. They cooked it in a pot or made it into cakes. And it tasted like something made with olive oil. When the dew settled on the camp at night, the manna also came down. Moses heard the people of every family wailing, each at the entrance of his tent. The Lord became exceedingly angry, and Moses was troubled. He asked the Lord, Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you, that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant? To the land you promised on oath to their forefathers. Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me. Give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself, and the burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you are going to treat me, put me to death right now. If I have found favor in your eyes and you do not let me face my own ruin, the Lord said to Moses, bring me 70 of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting that they may stand there with you. I will come down and speak with you there. And I will take of the spirit that is on you and put the spirit on them. They will help you carry the burden of the people so that you will not have to carry it alone. Tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. When you will eat meat, the Lord heard you when you willed. If only we had meat to eat, we were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat, and you will eat it. You will not eat it for just one day, or two days, or five, ten, or twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils, and you loathe it, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you, and have wailed before him, saying, Why did we ever leave Egypt? Thank you, Tom. Rebecca DeYoung, in her book on sin called Glittering Vices, she recounts a time when she was at the grocery store. She was in the checkout counter of the grocery store, and she looked up on the magazine rack, and she saw a copy of Family Circle magazine. And on the, the, the front page, uh, there, of course, was a, a picture of a chocolate cappuccino pie, 
Uh, and then on top of it, there were listed some feature articles. And one of the feature articles said, trim your tummy, 10 ways to curve your cravings. And then underneath that, there was another headline for another article that said, irresistible chocolates. And I think that sums up pretty well the confusion and the, the mixed messages which our society and our culture is sending us with regards to food. That on one hand, uh, there's, this, there's this dieting culture. There's this, this health nut kind of culture driven by image and all of this where, where dieting is, is fashionable. Uh, but then on the other hand, we seem to recognize that, you know what, your cravings are irresistible. Today we are continuing in our series on sin. We're talking about sin for eight weeks. And the central thesis of this whole series is that contrary to our our popular conception in our culture, in our culture it seems like you have to choose. Like either you you follow God or you enjoy life. Right? That that, that sin is, is what leads to life. That God's restricting us in these things that he tells us not to do. Right? In heaven there is no beer. That's why we drink it here as the frat song goes. So this idea that if you, if you follow God, it's going to restrict you, and it's, it's, going, to, you know, it's, going, to, it's going to take the fun out of life. And the central thesis of this whole series is that it's actually the very opposite. That far from leading to life, that sin, when rightly understood, is precisely that which leads to death. So we're, we're talking about we're talking about sin, and, and two weeks ago we looked at really the essence of sin. We saw five dimensions of sin, really four, uh, four things that are really describe the essence of sin and the one result of sin. We saw that, that sin, at its very most basic definition, is doing the unloving thing. It's doing the unloving thing in any given situation. We saw that, that sin is primarily a matter of the heart, We saw that sin is incredibly deceptive. We saw that sin is ultimately idolatry. And we saw, again, that that ultimately what sin leads to is death, to destruction. And we're going to see the same things as we move through these. What we're doing is we're looking at these seven deadly sins. And these are are sins which throughout church history, uh, Christians have recognized as particular areas where sin seems to really get us and to really affect us. There isn't, the seven deadly sins aren't listed as such in the Bible, though for each one of them certainly, as we're going to see, the Bible talks about all of these things, but, but they're just areas of our life where, where Christians throughout history have seen that this is a way in which sin can really get at us. And so uh, today we're looking at gluttony. Now, honestly, I don't know if you're like me, when I first saw, you know, when I was looking through this series and I'm like, I'm like, gluttony, does that really deserve to be up on the same list as like lust and greed and anger and pride? It just seemed a little bit, a little bit off. But honestly, as I have, have investigated this in the last week, um, and I, and I've seen even my own gluttonous tendencies, I begin to realize that actually our attitude towards food may affect us in ways we really don't even realize. One of the things we're going to see, uh, again, is that, is that sin is a matter of the heart. It's primarily a matter of the, of the heart. And, and so, so actually, you know, we're going to realize that, that gluttony affects us in ways we really don't even recognize. We often think of gluttony as something that is simply 
associated with perhaps being overweight. We're going to discover that's simply not true at all. That actually there's a much deeper issue going on that, that, that affects probably all of us if we'll, if we'll recognize this. So we're going, to look at, we're going to look at gluttony. And what we've discovered is, or what, what, throughout church history, what they've discovered is somewhere around the Middle Ages, uh, they sort of identified five kinds of gluttony. Uh, and, and, and these are, there's a modern acronym for uh, this, these five kinds of gluttony, and it's the word fresh, F-R-E-S-H, fresh, and that there are five kinds of gluttony. You've got fastidiousness, fastidious gluttony, you have ravenous gluttony, you have excessive gluttony, you have sumptuous gluttony, and you have hastily, eating hastily. And three of those, uh, let's see, it would be ravenous, excessive, and hastily, all deal with how we eat and how much we eat. But what we're also going to discover is that fastidiously and sumptuously, this actually refers to what we eat. And we're going to discover that picky eating can be as much a form of gluttony as as anything else. So we're going to go through this, and first what we're going to see is is that gluttony is, well... Gluttony can become something that really affects other people. That it can harm other people. We're going to see that it harms ourselves for sure, but we're going to see that it can also harm other people. We often think of gluttony as simply something that affects ourselves, but I think what we'll discover as we probe what it's really all about, how it can affect those, how it can affect those around us. In fact, gluttony leads us to do the unloving thing. And actually, we, we see that... We see that in this passage that, that the gluttony of the Israelites has eschatological implications. I want you to think about this here for a minute. Let's sort of set the context here. The Israelites are in the desert. Uh, why are they in the desert? Okay, because God has just rescued them from Egypt. Why has God rescued them from Egypt? He's rescued them from Egypt because they are his chosen people. Why are they his chosen people? For no other reason than his grace. What is the purpose for why he chose them? We go back to Galatians 12. and What we discover is that when Abraham was called, the ultimate purpose was to be a blessing to the nations. That he had chosen a people not just to rescue them from sin, but to use them as a people through which renewal and restoration could come to this world. And so when he calls the people of Israel into the land of Israel, the idea is to set up a community and a kingdom where people, when they look inside what's going on in that community, they get a glimpse of the age to come. And so he had called them to come and to set up this kingdom. And then ultimately, through that and through the twists and turns of the history of the people of Israel, Israel ultimately would lead to the coming of the Messiah. That Jesus, as Israel's king, would come and bring renewal and restoration to all things. And what I want us to notice here is that the entire plan of redemption almost gets interrupted because they don't like what's on the menu in the desert. They don't like the the food that's being offered to them. They want to go back to Egypt. They want to go back into slavery. They would rather have a great dinner than save the world. I have to wonder, though, if maybe we're often the same. Would we rather have a nice dinner than save the world? Would we rather, you know, drop $100 on a really nice dinner for two 
as opposed to drop $100 and buy 400 meals for people who are starving in this world. We worked with Stop Hunger Now, and we saw that 25 cents can buy a meal. What would we rather do? Would we rather drop $100 for a dinner for two, or would we rather drop $100 and feed 400 people? Now, there's a tension here. There's a tension here. Because we need to back up here a little bit. One of the things we need to recognize is that food is not intrinsically bad. Food is not intrinsically evil. In fact, this goes back to one of the things I said in our first series, and that was that there's nothing that is intrinsically sinful, but anything can be sinful. That God created everything in this world. Everything in this world was created good, And when something is sinful, what's happening is that something that was created good with good purposes gets twisted. That's what sin is. And so similarly with food, food isn't a a bad thing. It's it's a good thing. Actually, there's all kinds of passages that that talk about the the goodness of, of food. I'll read just a couple for you here. Psalm 104, Psalm 104, 14 through 15. He makes grass grow for cattle and plants for man to cultivate, bringing food, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread that sustains his heart. Uh, in Ecclesiastes, it says, I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and to do good while they live, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all of his toil. Uh, in fact, when, when God uh, calls Moses and is telling him about how he's going to deliver him from Egypt, Uh, He actually says, I'm going to lead you into the land of milk and honey. That's how he draws them out. That's how he entices them. And and then actually, if you read in Isaiah chapter 25, Isaiah chapter 25, which I think I marked it here somewhere. Yeah, Isaiah chapter 25 describes the age to come when God will come and renew and restore all things. And listen to the imagery that is used here. On the mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples a banquet of aged wine, the best meats, and the finest of wines. I guess maybe there might be beer in heaven after all. You see, food isn't bad. Food isn't a, a bad thing. It's a, it's a good thing. And, and in fact, as we see, we're, God desires for us to enjoy the blessings of food. In fact, again, even if you go back to, to, to Genesis chapter 12, I said that the God calls the people of Israel to be a blessing for the nations, but it also says that he calls them to be blessed. He says, I will bless you, and you will be a blessing to the nations. So there is a tension that sits there. There is a tension that, yeah, well, there's nothing wrong with spending money on a great dinner and recognizing, acknowledging that it comes from God and enjoying that. There's there's nothing wrong with that, but, but we have to ask ourselves, though, in our own lives, in our own hearts, is it out of proportion? Is it out of proportion with what we could do to help others, right? So, this is the first question. Now, the issue of gluttony goes beyond how we spend our money. And I want us to look at, at, at three things, three ways in which our gluttonous tendencies can negatively affect others. And this happens through three things. Uh, First of all, is through wanting too much. Secondly, it comes through uh, only being willing to eat certain things. And thirdly, it's wanting food too much. 
not that you necessarily want too much food. It's just that you really want it, even when you want it in moderation. So we're going to look at these, at these three things. First of all, the, the, the first one, excessive eating, this is obvious, right? We probably don't even really need to go into this too much. Uh, drunkenness. Why is drunkenness a sin? Let's think about this for a moment. I would say the primary reason why drunkenness is a sin is because it hinders your ability to love others. It's not the consumption of the alcohol that is sinful. It's that the drunken stupor and the morning hangover that hinders your ability to love others. That's that's the real tragedy of drunkenness. Of course, this goes beyond just alcohol. You know, I mean, if there's nothing inherently sinful about having a Big Mac, quarter, a Big Mac with cheese, uh, fries, and uh, a chocolate shake at midnight. There's nothing inherently sinful about that. But if in the morning uh, you, you can't go to your son's baseball game because you're feeling sick, well, then maybe it was. Maybe we could have thought that one through. Right? This is, again, the, the tragedy of of alcoholism and, and, and other forms of gluttony is, is the way in which it hinders your ability to, to love others. And so we, we, could, we could go on and on about that, but there, but there are other ways then too. It's not just a matter of how much you eat, but also what you're willing to eat. And this is where we get into picky eating. The picky eating can be, uh, can be sinful because of the ways in which it hinders your ability to love. I'll, I'll give you an example. A friend of mine, he grew up and in his house... His, his mom was like a short-order cook. And so when dinner time would come around, she would just ask the kids, what do you want for dinner? And one of them would be like, you know, I want mac- macaroni and cheese. The other was like, I want chicken nuggets. She's like, okay, I'll just fix it for you. So then he got married. And his wife prepares for him, slaves in the kitchen for hours, pre- prepares this wonderful meal, and he sits down and he goes, nope, I'll have pizza. C.S. Lewis talks about the effects of picky eating, the way it can, can, can end up coming across and being unloving to others in the screw tape letters. In the screw tape letters, this demon is bragging about how the devil has managed to, to get sin, the sin of gluttony, to infect this, this woman um, through her picky eating. She doesn't even realize how she's affecting others. Listen, listen to this. She is a positive terror to her hostesses and servants. She was always turning from what has been offered to her to say with a demure little sigh and smile, Oh, please, please, all I want is a cup of tea. Weak, but not too weak, and the teeniest, weeniest bit of really crisp toast. You see, because what she wants is smaller and less costly than what has been set before her, She never recognizes as gluttony her determination to get what she wants, however troublesome it may be to others. The real value of the quiet, unobtrusive work which the devil has been doing for years on this old woman can be gauged by the way in which her belly now dominates her whole life. The woman is what may be called the all is in in the all I want state of mind. So you see, you start thinking this through, you start realizing gluttony isn't just a matter of eating too much, that it actually can be a matter of an unwillingness to, unwillingness to eat something that's put before you and how that could adversely affect those around you. 
thirdly, third way in which gluttony can affect us is not so much how much we eat or what we're willing to eat, but how much we want it. How much we want it. We can see how this can adversely affect our relationships. So again, so, so maybe you, uh, you like coffee, and you don't drink it excessively. You just have one cup of coffee in the morning. But you have to have your cup of coffee. You have to have it. So even if you go on vacation with your family, and you're getting ready to go to the beach, and there's no Starbucks anywhere around, sorry, kids, we got to find Starbucks before we can go to the beach. Right? You, you have to find it. You, it you, so everybody's uh, life kind of revolves around the fact that you, you, it's, only, it's in moderation, right? So it can't be sin. You go to the, the grocery store and you go up to the deli and they're out of your favorite potato salad. And so you kind of get short with the, with the deli, the person working at the deli. Like, how can you do this? It's so irresponsible. How can you? I love this. I need this. I need this for my banquet. I need my, you know. And, and so all of a sudden, your gluttonous tendencies have hindered your ability to be a light in this world. Because having that potato salad, even in moderation, is more important than loving the guy at the deli counter. You see, if we think this through, we start to start to realize. I, mean, I, I remember chocolate chip cookies one time. I came home, there weren't any chocolate chip cookies. And I was just grumpy. I was just grumpy. It just kind of gets you. If you don't get your morning coffee, right, now everybody is affected by this. And see how gluttony can be sinful because it hinders our ability to love others. And then, of course, gluttony is sinful because it, it's destructive. This is the whole point. What, sin doesn't lead to life. Sin leads to death. And, and again, we could go on and on about how excessive eating and the, the health risks that come uh, from, from that sort of thing. Th- that, of course, is true. But hopefully we also see in this that there are other ways in which it can affect you. And so let's just put it this way. Picky eaters are never happy. If you're a picky eater and somebody invites you over to their house for dinner, and you're just like, oh, I don't know. What are they going to serve? You know, I, I don't know about this. And, I just, you know, the, the, the picky eater, like, whatever they serve, it's not, it's not going to bring joy to them because they, they, they have to have their certain thing, right? The guy who has developed a sophisticated palate for craft beer is sorely disappointed when his host only offers him Bud Light. You see, when you have something that, that, that you have to have, or even in moderation, you know, it becomes something that can can consume you. I, I actually knew of a guy who, and his issue was with alcohol. It wasn't even necessarily in excess, but, but anywhere he would go, he had to make sure that they had enough alcohol for him. And so, and so he was constantly in anxiety before he even had a drink. It wasn't even, he hadn't even had anything yet, and it was already affecting him. Because you see, when you want something and you have to have it, right, then you're, you're in anxiety over it. And, of course, the reality is that even that thing that you want, more often than not, over time, the joy that comes from it starts to get weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker. In fact, sometimes it gets to the point where that thing which you love so much, even that food that you loved so much, actually can become repulsive. 
I remember when I was in elementary school, once a month I would get to go across the street to this cafeteria, this kind of special cafeteria, and have a cheeseburger. I love that cheeseburger. It's the tastiest cheeseburger I'd ever had. And then when I got into middle school, I actually got to go to that cafeteria every week. 30 years later, I could not stand to see that cheeseburger. If I walked into that cafeteria, that is the last thing that I would possibly order. Because you see, this is how idolatry works. Something seems really great, but if you pour yourself into it, ultimately, either, here's what happens, and this happens with, with all things, not just food. We'll see this as we move to greed. We've talked about this before. When you increase your lifestyle, right, you get that new house, you get that new car. Initially, you're happier. Uh, but then after a while, that new car and that new house, you just start feeling normal. It's, now that's the new normal. The only problem is your car payments and your house payments are a lot more expensive than what normal used to be when you were down here. Similarly, if there's a particular food that you really like, and, boy, and maybe it's a little bit more expensive, and so you, get, you, you only have it a few times, right? Oh, but then maybe you get more money, so then you start buying that all the time. Before you know it, uh, the, uh, the, the, the really expensive, or we'll just say the normal Oreos, end up not really tasting any better than the generic ones. See, this is how idolatry works, and then ultimately even it can become repulsive. That's actually what happens in this passage, right? God's like, yeah, I'll I'll give you meat, and you eat it every day for a month, and it becomes repulsive. So gluttony is destructive in a number of different ways. So what is the answer? What is the solution? How do we deal with gluttony in our lives? Two things. Love people more than food. And love God more than food. Love people more than food. And love God more than food. Love people more than food. This is important. It helps us to understand something that's somewhat curious and somewhat ironic about the ministry of Jesus, and that is that Jesus himself gets accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. Turn with me to Luke. Luke chapter 7. Beginning in verse 31. This is on page 1,023 of your pew Bibles. And here Jesus is is talking about the religious leaders of his day, about, uh, about religion in Israel at this time. This is what he says, page 1023, beginning in verse 31. To what can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not cry. For John the Baptist neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say he is a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, what's going on here? Jesus is comparing the people of Israel to school children who would play this game where they would play music, and you were supposed to dance to the tune that they were playing. And so what Jesus is saying is that the religious leaders of, the, of, of his day are expecting Jesus and John the Baptist to sing their song, to, to, to dance to their music, to follow their rules and their way of doing life. 
And they're unhappy because John and Jesus won't dance to their tune. And, of course, one of the things that Jesus won't dance to is that he won't be so rigid in terms of their rules, even with regards to eating. That actually part of, a part of, of Judaism in the first century was, was about this following certain rules that you have to eat and follow, and it was incredibly meticulous, and, and Jesus wouldn't follow. He was much more open to hanging out with and being with people who didn't follow these rules. In fact, what we find throughout Jesus' ministry is he's always eating with people. His first, his first miracle, the wedding of Canaan, he turns water into wine, and, and he's going around, he's, he's always with people and, and at feasts and banquets, and this is why they accused him of being a glutton and a drunkard. Right? But here's the issue. Why was Jesus going to these banquets? Did he just really like the food? No, he really loved the people. It's all about the people. Jesus recognized that actually, you know, people tend to congregate around food. So maybe if I want to be with people, that's where I need to go. Food can be a wonderful thing to draw people together in community. I know I'm preaching on gluttony and probably nobody's going to want to have any donuts after the service. No, no, of course, but make it about the people. We didn't put those out there just to feed you. We put those out there so that we could gather together in community because there's something about food that that draws people together. But you see, you make it about the people. You love people more than you love food. And so all all of your gluttonous tendencies are, are held in check by that. Love people more than food. And love God more than food. You see, at the end of the day, sin is all about idolatry. It's about something being more important to you than God. Turn with me to John. John chapter 6. Page 1056. Jesus has just done the feeding of the 5,000. He's just fed them. And they're all very excited. And so they're chasing him around the Sea of Galilee like he's an ice cream truck. Verse 26, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. The truth is, we, we, we like food more than we like miracles. And we, we like food more than a magic show, right? How many of us would you, would you rather uh, you know, go to, a, go to a, a magic show or go to a really great dinner? No brainer. He says, the reason that you came to me is not because I did amazing things, it's because I fed you. Verse 27. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. And then in verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he believes in me will never be thirsty. God is the one thing that can truly satisfy us. Sin isn't about avoiding things. It's about turning to God. Fasting, which is 
is seen as a way of pulling away from gluttony. Fasting isn't about just giving things up. It's about turning from something to God and saying, you are what I need. You are what I want. And so when you find yourself in those scenarios where your gluttonous tendencies of all the different forms in which I've articulated here start to play upon you, you need to remind yourself, no, God is what I need. God is what I want. He is the only one who can truly satisfy me. Let's pray. Dear God, we praise you for the gift of life. God, you are the one who has given us the blessings of this world, (coughs) including food and drink. God, I pray that we would not turn them into idols. Pray that we would not look to them as the thing which we need above all else. In any given moment, in any given situation, God, we would realize that worshiping you is a daily activity, that it plays its way out in every moment of our lives. God, I pray that perhaps this would remind us of that, that this would would move us far beyond food and eating, but that even as we go through our lives and go through a world where food is just such a dominant part of, of culture and life, Lord, that it would remind us every time that you are what we need above all else, that we would worship you not just on Sunday, but every day at breakfast, lunch, and dinner, that you would be the one whom we lift up and look to for life. Pray all these things in Jesus' name.